Garrison Keillor wrote these words. Everybody in the family knew that Uncle John couldn't pray without talking about the cross and crying. Sure enough, Uncle John prayed, talked about the cross, and cried. Meanwhile, the rest of us shifted nervously from one foot to the other and longed for the prayer to end. All of us knew that Jesus died on the cross for us, but Uncle John had never gotten over it. See, part of my goal in this series that we now enter into in the book of Galatians is that we too would join Uncle John and never get over the cross. We are beginning uh, this epistle this morning, a book that has had a great impact on the history of the church, uh, obviously, uh, in Galatia at this time, but in particular for us in the Protestant Reformation, Luther himself felt very tied to this book and credits this epistle primarily with his coming to grips with the doctrine of justification by faith. He loved it. Truly loved it. Enough to say, quote, the epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle. I have married myself to it. It is my Catherine von Bora, the name of his wife. I'm not sure how she took that quote, uh, but he definitely felt a dear, uh, uh, an endearment to this particular epistle of Paul's. Of course, it's not just Luther. Augustine himself spoke about his indebtedness to this book for his own theology. Charles Wesley said that he was converted while reading uh, the introduction to Galatians written uh, by Martin Luther and then meditating uh, in his bed on these words, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And my hope is that just as it has impacted so many saints throughout the history of the church, that it will impact our congregation as well that we will see that not only the doctrine that is taught in this book is important, and it is so important that one's very soul, according to Paul, depends upon it, but also that the teaching of this gospel will have the transforming power that Paul says that it should have. It really does shape us. It shapes us as individuals, but the gospel also should shape us as a church community, and you see that very clearly in this particular epistle, that there's something about the gospel believed that should have uh, an impact on the way that a community itself lives with one another. It should shape how we carry ourselves, how we treat one another, now that we have come to believe in a gospel that Paul tells us is of sheer grace. Well, as we introduce this letter, we immediately find that the letter is written by the Apostle Paul. He names himself very quickly. There's very little dispute on this, uh, even amongst those who like to dispute everything, and so I won't spend a lot of time trying to convince you of that. But Paul writes to the churches that he planted in the region of Galatia, which is in our time probably most likely central to southern Turkey. Uh, And these churches were Again, congregations that Paul himself had preached the gospel to, had planted, had left with his apostolic blessing that were born as the gospel spilled outside the borders of Israel into a completely Gentile territory that Paul had been, had hands laid on him to, or that Paul had been commissioned to preach to. But according to the book, after Paul had planted this church, Others had come, 
and sown a seed that differed a bit from that which had been sown previously by Paul. Paul's gospel preached to the Gentiles had nothing in it about how one might want to consider possibly becoming more Jewish, more obedient to the laws of the Torah, more concerned about things like circumcision or dietary laws. Uh, But, you know, thankfully, have no fear, some other folks who saw Paul's mistake uh, had, you know, credentials that they felt would give them some authority there. They knew the heavies back in Jerusalem. They would mention James and Peter, and they would mention, you know, uh, really the genesis of the gospel, where it came from in Jerusalem, and they would come and help this church get further in their Christian experience. You believed in Jesus, they would say. That is wonderful, and it is a good start. You know, there are just a few things that you should know that would help you become, you know, fully converted or more Christian or just a little bit more qualified for these things that you say that you've been initiated into. It is likely, due to what Paul writes in the first two chapters, that with that message that changed Paul's message, there was also some questioning of Paul's authority. Um, You know, at least, if not questioning, it's clear that they were kind of winking at his apostolic commission. I mean, what seminary did Paul go to again? I mean, he really wasn't one of Jesus' first-round draft picks. You know, if you look in the Gospels, he's not there. Is he really the guy that you want to entrust all of your thinking to when we have come from the homeland itself and from the apostles who we know walked with Jesus, and this is the message that we believe that you should be adhering to? Well, the problem that was created by this further teaching according to Paul, is deadly serious. Uh, We know it's serious by Paul's response. You'll notice he explodes into this letter. He does not waste a lot of time with pleasantries. Uh, He tells them by verse 6, I am absolutely shocked that you so quickly have denied the gospel that I preached to you. He talks as he goes on about his frustration. He talks about how he is puzzled, utterly confused by them, that he's angry with them. He calls his own beloved converts fools before he ends this letter because of their inability to stick to the teaching that he had left behind. So whatever is at stake, according to Paul, the stakes could not be higher. To disregard Paul's message is to desert God himself, according to Paul. It is a perversion of and thus a renunciation of the gospel, according to Paul. It is another gospel, even as we hear this morning, which is no gospel at all. So serious that Paul is willing to shamelessly list his credentials, and we'll be seeing that for the next couple of weeks. He only does this a couple of times in the epistles, and he does it when there is controversy where his teaching is being contradicted where he says, okay, so now I've got to prove myself to. He does it in Corinthians, right? He does it at the Church of Corinth. When he starts listing how much his training is to be preferred above those who have spoken against his teaching. And he does it here again. He shamelessly begins to talk about how qualified his apostleship is. It's so serious that he will say that he wishes his opponents who are insisting on circumcision in order to really be Christian, would just finish the job and castrate themselves while they're at it in order that their teaching would not be propagated, metaphorically speaking. The castration was not metaphorical. 
but his goal was. So serious is this departure that Paul says that those who teach anything different about the gospel than what he already brought should be pronounced damned to hell under the very curses of God. I mean, it's that serious. It's so serious, and Paul is so angered because he loves these people. He cares about these churches, and he doesn't want them to lose what was theirs in Christ, to lose what he calls their freedom. He doesn't want them to lose the grace that has been given to them. He doesn't want them to lose the assurance and the comfort and the peace that comes with the unadulterated gospel proclaimed concerning Jesus Christ. He wants them and he wants us, if you will, to have it all. To truly have all that God has given And there are ways, according to Paul anyway, to miss that, to fall short of that, to not have what God has given. There are ways to undermine the gifts of God and to lose out on all the blessings that are offered in the gospel. And may God graciously teach us what those are and give us the grace to avoid those as well. First thing I want us to see this morning is that another is not another. I mean, it is clear right from the beginning that the topic that is on the table for Paul, the issue that is at stake in Galatia, is nothing other than the gospel itself. Seven times some form of that word gospel is used within these first nine verses. Uh, And so if you're you're looking for the main subject, it's not difficult uh, to put your eye on it. And this gospel, according to Paul's defining here, is something that is preached, it is declared. Notice what he says in verse 8, if we or an angel preach, and as he goes on in verse 9, as I've said before, if anyone is preaching another gospel, and so what is under attack is a message, a teaching, a proclamation, or what we might call doctrine. And that message is being, in his words, distorted. That's the way that your ESV translates it anyway in verse 7. And we hear distorted and we think it's just misshapen a bit. Uh, But that word's not used often in the New Testament, about three times. And every time, uh, it doesn't just mean a little distorted or even perverted, but rather the opposite of the original intention. So, for instance, when it's used in the Gospels, it says, and the sun will be turned to darkness. Same word, turned there. The sun will be turned to darkness. Or James says in his epistle, May your laughter be turned to mourning. So notice, the son's intention is to give light. He says, may it be turned to darkness. Laughter, which expresses joy, he says, may that be turned to the exact opposite, to sorrow. And Paul says here, they are distorting the gospel, which means they're turning it from a gospel to a not gospel. It's not just the gospel and it's a little tweaked. It's the gospel becoming the exact opposite of what it is. It goes from good news to to something that becomes ultimately devastating and bad news. And that is why Paul says specifically in verses 6 and 7, these people have come in and they've preached a different gospel, but he says the problem is there isn't another gospel. It is a singular entity. It's not that there is one gospel among many, and here's one that I have, and here's another that this guy has. He says there is the gospel... The definite article, there is one, and preaching another means that you have not preached anything at all that has to do with the actual given good news from God. It is the gospel, and if it has changed at all, 
What it's changed into is a counterfeit, and it's deadly, according to Paul. You'll notice that with Paul throughout this whole epistle, it's all or nothing. His language throughout the epistle confirms that time and time again. You are either a slave or you are free. You are either going to be of the law or you're going to be of faith. It's either going to be works or it's going to be grace. It is either the old evil age or the new creation. You can't mix these things. It's either of or from men or it's from God. It's either the flesh or the spirit. It is absolutely polar opposite. And Paul says, what I brought to you was all the good side of that ledger, and what these people have brought to you is the exact opposite, and it will kill you. So another is not another, but notice he also says another is apostasy. Now, this is not a popular thing to talk about in our time, but Paul is real clear. Uh, And he says to teach and believe something wrongly, especially in regard to the gospel, isn't just a mistake, it's a deadly mistake that's a renunciation of the faith. In our time, we are, you know, in these conversations where it's like, I love God, I mean, I just don't believe it matters much what you believe about Him, right? We, we pick and choose our religion according to our preferences, Or we'll say things like, well, they mean well, they're devout, and that's all that really counts. But you're going to learn from this book, these people were far more devout than most people you know. I mean, devout enough to undergo surgery, to to really love Jesus. Uh, But Paul says in verse 6, to believe a different gospel message, notice, is to desert God himself. We, we like to parse it where there's, you know, the message is about God, but then there's God. And so you can be wrong about the message, but rewrite about God. But notice what Paul says is, I cannot believe, I am astonished how quickly you are deserting him who called you through grace in Christ and turning to a different gospel. So the turning to a different gospel is a desertion of the God who called you by his grace all at one time. To turn to one is to turn away from the other, and there is no in-between. So another is apostasy, but notice also another is anathema. It is so serious, so potentially deadly, that he pronounces damnation curses on those who would promote a different message. Verses 8 and 9, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven... Notice Paul, the rhetoric is impeccable. He includes himself. He says, if I come back six months from now and I'm preaching another gospel... Let me be damned to hell. But notice, he doesn't just say I, he says we. So he probably includes this party that he's with, that he's introduced himself with, the brothers that he mentions in that opening statement. But he's also setting up his diatribe against the apostle Peter that will come later. He says, I don't care who's preaching it. If it's apostle A or apostle B, if it's James, if it's Peter, if it's me, even if it's a messenger from heaven itself, If it does not agree with the original foundation that was laid here, let them all be cursed. That word that he uses, anathema, is those covenantal curses that we read about this morning in Deuteronomy uh, 30 and other places where God says there's two ways. You're either blessed or you're cursed. It's to come under the curse sanctions of God where he pours out his anger. He says, if you get this message wrong and you intentionally are promoting a false message in this regard, Anathema is pronounced over you. So it is serious. And 
It shows us that doctrine does matter. In fact, false doctrine is so serious that it can even damn, according to Paul. And again, that's a hard thing to believe in our time because of the spirit of the age. Uh, You know, uh, Nietzsche won, whether we like it or not, in that wherever you go, uh, you, you hear this kind of like, idea where beliefs in our culture are like clothes or like music. It's just a matter of personal taste or preference, right? And you can even mix and match genres or styles to your liking. Like, I'll take a little Jesus, but I also really like this part of this religion. I can just mix them all together, and no one can say who's wrong or right because we're all just choosing for ourselves our own way and our own religion. What works for you works for you, and Paul says, nope. There is one gospel, and that one gospel message brings us into relationship to the one and only true God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and to miss it is to miss Him. So another is anathema, but also additions or losses. What is just as hard for us to believe is Paul's doctrinal issue here. His issue isn't that people aren't being serious enough. A lot of times we think, you know, If people aren't, you know, if you're going to damn someone to hell, it's because people aren't really taking their faith seriously. They need to, you know, know, uh, shape up and fly right, and then they they won't end up in trouble. But Paul's not angered here uh, in this particular book with the libertines. That's not his issue. These people are devoted, and they're serious. These aren't your lax, easy breezy, you know, two-time Easter and Christmas Christians. His concern, in fact, is their false rigor. They're so serious that they're adding things that seem noble and good and difficult and religious and righteous. They're even in the Bible, and if you just do them, then it will show your seriousness toward God. They're adding something that wasn't there in Paul's message. The primary way the gospel is perverted in Galatia is by trying to make it harder than it is. And this is not uh, something that's been lost in time, is it? Perversion comes by addition, not by subtraction here. And any addition to the gospel of grace, according to Paul, is an utter subtraction of Jesus. If you add something to the gospel, you lose Jesus, and that is the end of the story for him. It is one or the other. It is all or nothing. So notice their tact here. I mean, yes, Jesus. We believe that. We believe what you believe, Jesus. But Jesus and circumcision, or just Jesus and some food rules, or Jesus and the right apostles, better apostles than the one you listen to, Jesus and Torah. I mean, it is the Bible after all. There's Jesus and just a thing or two that you also have to do with it that will really let us know that you really mean this thing called faith. For them, it's faith, sure faith, but also a few compulsory items to show us you really, really believe. And that doesn't sound that deadly. In fact, it sounds like most of the things you hear when you hear the Bible taught all around the world. And for Paul, he says, this is an early heresy and it's a deadly heresy. It can be subtle. I mean, circumcision is in the Bible. In fact, God really did like it for a long, long time. And yes, I mean, we know things have changed, but 
Could it hurt to still be circumcised? I mean, think how much it would mean to your Jewish brothers and sisters and how much respect you'd be showing them. It would at least show us that you're taking it seriously. Isn't it better to do something that might be over the top and really secure, you know, this belief that you say you have? It's how it always happens when we add law to our gospel. Jesus, of course, Jesus. But, you know, Jesus would clearly encourage us towards a certain sort of modesty, and therefore, if you really love Jesus, if you really have faith, if you really believe the gospel, don't wear pants to church, which was something that was real popular in the 50s and 60s. It's not popular anymore, so ladies, you get to go to heaven now if you're wearing pants today. I mean, Jesus is all you need, but if you really love Jesus and you really think that he's all you need, then you also need to be doing your daily devotions or join a small group or fill in the blank. And if you're not doing those things, it shows that you really don't believe. So it's faith and faith and devotions, because devotions really is just the fruit of your faith. But if you don't do the devotions, then you don't really have faith. It's just Jesus plus this other step. Brothers and sisters, hear me. We need to be aware of this tendency because it lives in all of us. And our culture is not serving us well in this regard at this current time in history. And you need to ask yourself, you know, what additions might I have? I mean, what caveats are already popping into your head? If Paul was to come and say it is all sheer grace, it is Jesus plus nothing, what sorts of things would you say? Well, I mean, I believe that but, of course, it wouldn't be Jesus plus nothing if this one thing is happening, right? If they're, if they're these kind of people or they're doing these sorts of things, it couldn't just be Jesus and that. We believe that, but we don't want to fully believe it. Paul is going to confront you and force you to lose any caveats that you have, whether it be ethnicity or income or education or tattoo ratio or political party. I mean, you know, a thought experiment. Does a, does a Chinese communist who converts to Jesus have to renounce his communism in order to become a Christian? Again, those are questions that we as Americans, we immediately, you know, turn in on. But is it Jesus plus political affiliation, or is it Jesus and his grace only? Full stop. I mean, think of all the cultural things that are presently being added as markers of who's in and who is out. Beware that these do not find their way into the gospel. Who can be accepted and acceptable before God? It is Jesus plus nothing. And Jesus plus anything is destructive of grace, no matter how nicely or piously you say it. It's not going to be more pious than these people were presenting it. I'll tell you that much. They had Bible verses and history completely on their side. And Paul said, they're anathema. So as we close this morning, if another is not another, then we want to see finally gospel is grace upon grace. We'll be spending a lot of time in this book defining this gospel, but let's take a quick look at how Paul at least introduces it this morning in these opening verses. Immediately you'll see that good news, this gospel they preach is tied to an event. Look at verse 1, not from men or from a man, but from the risen Jesus. That's where he got his gospel from. Notice the risen Jesus. Then in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This event, this dying and rising of Christ, 
is the content of Paul's message and is how this gift that we call grace enters history and now flows into the world, ultimately reshaping the whole of the cosmos as we know it. Or maybe better. Christ and what he has done is the substance of the gift that God gives. Notice, Christ gave himself, verse 4, as gift for our sins. The Lord loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. The Christ event, the dying and rising of our Lord, is the gift-giving event of God to his people. It's an event that all the recipients of its benefits are clearly defined under one heading. Everyone who receives this Jesus are all termed undeserving. Notice our very greeting begins with grace and peace to you. So it's based on grace. Verse 6, you are called by grace Verse uh, uh, in chapter 1. God called you, Paul says, God called you and changed your life, and notice the basis on which he did it. He gives no qualification. The only reasoning he has is by the grace of Christ. God called us based on grace. So it's irrespective of worth, which is part of the problem in Galatia. It's like, well, do you want to fit in or not? Do you want to be a... And he says, well, wait a minute. You are called on no basis of worth, so there's no way to then make oneself worthy in the community or more worthy or have a standing that puts them above others. It's not just irrespective of worth. Sometimes it's an absence of worth, as we will see in detail next week. This is contrary to our whole way of operating. Our whole way of doing life has always been under another banner. Whether you know it or not, you are by nature someone who is prone uh, to be a legalist. You love law, uh, even though you don't keep it, uh, even though you don't do it, uh, you know you love it because you love to point out when other people are failing at it, uh, and you also will run to excuses when your, you know, your faults are pointed out to say, well, well, I mean, I didn't really do it. Here's all the reasons why. Well, why do you do that? Well, because you want to be righteous your own way, by your own merits, by your own work. You want to rank somehow by what you do or think or feel. And Paul comes in and he says, this one's all based on grace. There's no merit whatsoever. It's not based on your worth. In fact, it's contrary to who you are. And it's contrary to your way of thinking. And that's why Paul will largely define this gospel at the beginning by way of negation. He says, you have one way of thinking. Let me tell you what grace and the gospel are. It's everything that you don't think. It's not the way that you do business. So notice, it's not from man. It's not through man. It's not of the law. It's not by works. It's not by human tradition or human revelation. It is not through circumcision. If it, was, it is something we do not understand, according to Scripture. It is something we resist. It is something we constantly are trying to make attainable and understandable by adding something to it that we can do, that we can hang our hat on, that we can say, yes, grace, but also you see how I'm growing, Lord? And these other people aren't growing quite like that. And that, according to Paul, is deadly. Because it's through grace in Christ, everything changes. Worth and how we define worth is completely recalibrated. And this is what I mean at the, meant at the beginning of this sermon, is that it has to change the way that a community lives together. Because if you are called by grace, not by worth, you can't then live in that family by judging everyone by their worth and not by grace. 
Paul says it just doesn't work that way anymore. You have been taken from the present evil age that did everything according to the way that law works. He says now you've brought into to God's family. He's adopted you as His child. He is your father. And there's a new family ethic. And it's not based on worth. And therefore, you have to treat one another in this new way. I mean, even the idea of righteousness or goodness according to the Torah is going to have to be reevaluated. Right? I mean, you can't be a good law keeper and not be circumcised in the Old Testament. And Paul says you're going to have to relook at what righteousness means even now because of what Christ has done. Because of this event, Jesus dying and rising and the grace given because of it, everything changes. And that changes our world, the shape of our life and our ethics and our community. The grace preached by Paul, he will say, must be the grace practiced where the preaching wasn't heard rightly. You must be hearing it wrong or believing it wrong. It is a gift of sheer grace to the whole community without regard to honor or worth or standing, and therefore that community must live that way with one another. And that scares us, and it is scary. I mean, this is not how the church operates a lot of the time. We want to show our seriousness by our change, and those aren't terrible things. Our ability to fly right when we really, uh, we want to show our ability to fly right when what we really need is a community of people who know our actual weaknesses, you know, the ones we hide from everybody. Because the reality is they have the same ones, and we've all received uh, freely the gift of God to each one of us. And we were received before we knew what was good or before we thought what was right or we acted like we were supposed to act. And Paul says, if you can love one another and treat one another in the true standing that you have, that is life-changing for a community. And if you can't, you've missed grace. William Ng, in one of the stories that he wrote, speaks of this mother observing her neighbor She says, she doesn't miss a day, Mother observed. There was a dedication about the woman that always gave us pause as she daily went to Mass. I wish I had a God to pray to now, Mother sometimes said, but I do not seem to be able to find Him. See, Mother had stopped going to church. Quote, church isn't the place to go with your troubles. Church is just a place to go when you're feeling good and have a new hat to wear. There was a little bitterness in it when she said it, a little self-pity, but there was also a lot of truth. Our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have talked to, to have lifted the curse she felt upon her and saved her from feeling damned. She would have embarrassed the man into speechlessness had she gone to him with her story. He would have been unable to look at her or my father without changing color. Most of our morality, I was beginning to think, was based on a refusal to recognize sin. Our entire religious heritage, it seemed to me, was one of refusal to deal with it. So often, that is the problem with church, right? We become church people. And, you know, you can't let out what you really are or the other church people will look down on you. And Paul's saying, 
If you don't understand the message of the gospel, which means that none of you had worth and God called you in that state, then you'll never be able to live as a community to one another and you'll still be playing under the same operation of the world, which is make sure this person ranks right, thinks right, acts right in order to be acceptable here. But what if we believed this message? I mean, what if it got in our bones? What would we get? Well, according to Paul, what we'd get is freedom. I mean, true freedom. He repeats it over and over throughout this book. And that is what God wants for you. He wants for you freedom through grace. It is his mission. For those of us who have all life long been slaves in this present evil age, he wants to set us free. And this saving mission, you'll notice, is accomplished through a message. One that we hear, Lord willing, week in and week out. May we, like Uncle John, never get over it. When we hear the cross, may we be the ones who want to meditate upon it in our own joyful sorrow. What Christ has done for sinners, for ourselves, and for each other. Let's pray.